Let's start with prayer, and we're going to dig into the book of Ephesians tonight. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would bless our time in your word. Pray that you'd open it to our hearts and our minds, and it would live in our imaginations. And Lord, it would uh, bring us into just a new sense of who you are and what you have done for us, Lord. We are so thankful for your grace and your goodness, Lord. And um, quite literally, where would we be without it? So bless us tonight with the riches of your word, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The letter of the Ephesians is twice attributed to Paul, twice in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3. He identifies himself as the one who is speaking, which is, you know, <clears throat> actually twice as often as he does in his other letters. But uh, he also three times describes himself, for example, in chapter 3, verse 1, as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, 1, a prisoner of the Lord. And again, in 620, at the end, he says, and I am an ambassador in chains. And all of that is based upon the fact that when Paul was writing the, this letter, he was a prisoner. He was in prison for a period of four years, uh, two years in the city of Caesarea, which was the capital of Judea. Uh, where the Roman governor reigned, and he was there in prison for two years. And then he was sent to Rome, where he spent another two years. We call this his first Roman imprisonment, because he will have a second imprisonment, which will lead to his execution. But this time, he spends two years in prison. He is successfully acquitted of the charges and allowed to continue ministry for a few more years until he is rearrested by Nero sometime after the burning of Rome, accused of being part of the band who was responsible for the great fire that burned up uh, four entire areas of the city and, and damaged almost every one except for a few. Uh, and so as a result, um, to deflect blame for himself, the emperor uh, blamed it on the Christians and said they had started. And of course, Paul and Peter both were executed. But the date of his first Roman imprisonment is about 60 to 62 AD. And it's during this time that he will write the book of Ephesians as well as the letter to the Philippians, the Colossians, and the small little letter of Philemon. Um, during that time, Paul was under house arrest. He was, in other words, he had a probably what we would call more a rented apartment since much of Rome was really populated by these high-rise buildings that people lived in, really packed in like sardines. And he would have been chained uh, day and night to a Roman soldier who was there to ensure that he didn't flee and that he uh, appeared for his hearings and, and trials. Uh, which may have been probably the impetus when we get to chapter 6 where he talks about putting on the armor of God, the spiritual armor that he describes really the, the panoply of a Roman soldier's uh, uh, um, armor that he would wear and his weaponry. <clears throat> and undoubtedly being chained to this guy, one of these guys 24-7, he became imminently familiar, intimately familiar with uh, the putting on and the taking off of this uniform day after day after day for two solid years. Interesting, though, is that Paul writes the Ephesians, a group of people who he had a very long and intimate relationship with, and um, which is interesting because the letter really lacks much of the kind of personal commentary that he makes in many other letters in which he's addressing specifically just one church or one group of believers within a city where he administered. And that's really kind of led to the conclusion, and I think it's probably valid, that what Ephesians was was more of what we call a circular letter. In other words, it was intended to be 
transmitted and carried around to a number of different churches and not just exclusively the church in Ephesus. We do have example, another example that's later on where he actually instructs for it to be read at different cities. And so this was probably of that nature. Uh, it was carried, we know, who was the carrier and the deliverer of the letter, a guy by the name, we would say in English, we, it's spelled like Tychicus, but actually it's pronounced Tuchikos. And he simply refers to him as, as a dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord at the end of the letter, who he said, when he comes, he will inform you of everything that's going on with me. We know somewhat about him. In chapter, Acts chapter 20, verse 4, it mentions his name as being part of Paul's entourage, a man who was from probably the city of Ephesus, since it simply says Asia, which is the region around Ephesus. And uh, he was just part of Paul's regular entourage uh, throughout this entire period that <clears throat> we have to, at this point, Paul actually had a ministry tree, team that traveled with him from city to city as he did his work. But why did Paul write this letter? Well, Ephesians is one of those books in which you can, I, I would put it, you can get lost in the forest and not see the trees, or all you see is the trees and not the forest. And I would basically say it is a forest that has some rather majestic trees in it, and it's easy to do. Because what happens when we read it is we get so involved in the many things that he says that are really powerful and profound nature, great doctrinal statements, a wonderful practical application, that it's easy to miss the, what the bigger story or the totality of the measure is about. Because when Paul wrote the letter, he had really one predominant thing he wanted to say to the Christians in, that were going to be reading it. And essentially, that question wasn't about predestination or church structure or spiritual warfare, but it was about unity. The unity that is supposed to be one of the divining characteristics of the Christian life. In fact, when he begins the second half of the letter in chapter 4, verse 3, he makes this statement. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So if you want a, a, a verse that would be kind of the theme of the book, that's really it. And it's interesting, the emphasis, make every effort. In other words, this is the priority concern, that you should be priority concerned in your relationship with other believers to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Um, and <laughs> the problem, uh, the reason why he would say something like this should be more than obvious to us. I mean, the problem of divisions and disunity and discord were, are, and always have been a continuing issue, not just within the church, but you know it in your life, in all your human relationships, getting along with other people is often a challenge. I mean, we like to say things like, well, you know, you, can, you, you can't pick your family, but you can pick your friends or vice versa. But the truth of the matter is, even with your friends, you can get into conflict and division and strife. And the reason why this matters to you and I as followers of Jesus is because it was Jesus who said to us in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the point is, it's impossible to avoid having differences of opinions or misunderstandings and having relationship conflicts. There's nobody who's ever been able to really have any kind of closeness with other people and not have those things arise. 
I, I have a simple saying that people in proximity produce problems. And, and that's just, you just find that. I mean, it's, you know, I, I thought when I got married that my wife was so fortunate to have somebody as wonderful to me to share her life with. And I mean, what possibly could be a problem between the two of us? You know, I, I just always, I told her last night, I said, you're beautiful and I'm brilliant. What can go wrong? <laughs> and her response is, let's revisit that brilliant part. But uh, the whole simple reality is that, that this is human nature. This is what happens. And it's interesting that in the church, oftentimes, we have a much higher expectation as if there should never be disagreements or differences of opinions or conflicts or issues. It's unavoidable. Not only maybe it shouldn't be, but it is, and it always has been. From the day of Pentecost forward, people have been getting into controversial conflicts. The issue is, how do we deal with them? How do we respond to conflicts? And to that, Paul says, make every effort to resolve it, to come to a bond of peace. I know people are saying, well, I have to stand on my principles and I can't compromise. You know, one of the things I would just simply say, make sure that the principles you're standing on are ones that God cares about. Because sometimes we can draw lines in the sand that God never asked us to draw. And so the simple fact is there are areas where we the church is supposed to divide on. We're supposed to simply say, that's not biblical Christianity, and I can't in clear conscience, you know, uh, agree with you. But you don't even have to do that disagreeably. You don't even have to lose your temper or raise your voice. You can disagree agreeably, but the whole point is, that's more rare. Most of the time, we divide over really petty stuff disagreements and misunderstandings and so forth. And so he says, you know, this should be really front and center. Now, we live in a very uh, litigious and, and divisive culture. I mean, we, we live in a time in our nation where it's everything is marked by people being against something. You know, you can ask anybody, who do you hate the most right now? And they can produce a list. They probably have it tattooed on their arm, you know, beginning with highest of office in the country. And you begin to make issues about stuff. And, 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 the, and the danger of that is, is we become defined by what we're against. Because that's what comes out of us first and foremost, what we're against. Instead of really making sure that what we are for more than anything else is Jesus. And I, I say it facetiously, but, and it isn't a lottery, but I love to put it that way. You won the lottery. <laughs> you get to you spend eternity in heavenly places and enjoy God's incomparable riches. Even if you don't have two nickels to rub together on this earth, you are destined for eternal greatness. And that should be the, the permeating issue in our life, the thing that becomes the fragrance of who we are and how we deal with problems. Uh, and, I, you know, I can say this because I'm the only one in the room who does this without fail, <laughs> except when I don't, and <laughs> which tends to be more often than I'd like to admit. But the simple fact is that is the truth. And as a result, we should be looking for those things that bind us together, not the things that pull us apart. Well, this was something, as I said, that we really began to realize is, is present in the early church because Paul addresses it so frequently. When you start looking for it, you find it is really a theme that runs through all of his letters and the letters of the other writers as well. Because you see, division and discord and disunity can only bloom in the absence of true Christian love. That if you're determined to love one another, then 
those things have a hard time taking root and really getting any kind of blossoms growing out of it that become like toxic blooms. But we've seen in our studies of Romans, we saw it in the Galatians, this was a particular problem in the early church between the Gentiles and the Jews. And part of it is, I think, that, that disappointment. Do you know how it is sometimes when you do business with a non-Christian and they prove themselves to be crooked and you're not terribly surprised and it's kind of easier to say, well, you know, they're not saved. I can't expect regenerate behavior from a degenerate or unregenerate. But when a brother or a sister deals with us in a crooked way, then we are just really, really upset by that. And I, and then I certainly understand that. But that's kind of what was going on here because the Gentiles have come to the God of Israel through Christ and feel themselves part of this new community and suddenly they discover that the Jews don't like them and don't want them. Even some who are professing to be followers of Jesus won't have anything. As we talked about in Galatians, Peter getting up and separating himself and not eating with the Gentiles. Those things become very hurtful. And I, I suspect that that's kind of some of the underlying dynamic that we find in Paul's writings, and we see it brought out here again in Ephesians. Because in chapter 2, in verse 11, Paul makes this statement. He says, therefore, to, writing to the Gentiles, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. That was kind of a derogatory way in which the Jews would refer to a non-Jew, a Gentile, as being uncircumcised. And by those who call themselves the circumcision. And then he goes on, remember that you were, at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship, citizenship in Israel. And you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. And then he says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two one, the two being Jew and Gentile, he's made them one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Again, one of the things we find in these places where Paul planted churches, that it was often the Jews in those communities who would stir up the Gentiles in opposition against the church. And so as a consequence, I think there developed a real kind of hatred on the part of many of the Gentile believers towards the Jews and because they had made their life so much more difficult. But he makes reference to that, that wall of the division, that barrier wall or dividing wall. Uh, Paul's actually referring to something that had physical reality. That's not just a verbal metaphor of some kind. He's talking about that there was literally a wall that served that purpose. In fact, in the temple in Jerusalem, there's a wall that was about four and a half feet tall. And it was designed to physically present, prevent the Jews from being able to enter into it. In other words, if you look at this picture of the temple, you'll see the temple building at the end. Uh, around that is a small courtyard, which is called the Court of, the, of Israel, where the priests and men alone were allowed to go. Outside of that was the Court of the Women. And then outside of that was the Court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles really uh, excluded them. They were excluded from coming in past this one barrier. If we go to the next slide, you'll get a better picture of how this wall, they call a balustrade, basically a low wall, but its only purpose was to let you know that you cannot go, if you're a Gentile, you cannot go any closer to the temple than this wall. 
And if you do, there's consequences. In fact, the writer Josephus tells us, he says, there was a partition made of stone. Its construction was very elegant. And upon it stood pillars, equal distances from one another, declaring the laws of purity, some in Greek, some in Roman letters, that is in Latin, that no foreigner should go with that sanctuary. Um, in fact, we know that there were 13 stone slabs that were actually built into part of the wall, and <clears throat> there was an inscription. It's called a warning inscription. This is one of two of these that have been found, and it's this one, the two that they found were written in Greek. They haven't found any in Latin yet, but literally this is what it reads. No foreigner is allowed to enter within the balustrade surrounding the sanctuary and the court, whoever is caught will be personally responsible for his ensuing death. So if you're a Gentile and you go past that opening, you're uh, susceptible to being killed, usually at the hands of those who are worshiping inside. Uh, that's where the term laying on of hands first came. No. Um, <laughs> now, Paul, in, in saying this to the Ephesians, that that wall has been removed, is a simply saying, you can now go boldly into the very presence of God. But he had personal experience with the, the response of someone being a non-Jew passing through that wall. Because we read in chapter 21, when Paul is first arrested before he's imprisoned for two years in Caesarea, we read, it says, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. And they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the, into the temple area and defiled this holy place. And Luke offers this parenthetical explanation. He says, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, apparently a Greek again, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area, which apparently he had not. But the whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops of the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar, and he at once took some soldiers, some officers and soldiers, and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, literally saved his life and put him under arrest. Now, there was a fortress that was built right up against the temple courtyard. It was called the Antonio Fortress, named after Mark Anthony, who was a close friend of, uh, of uh, Herod the Great. And literally, Roman soldiers would be standing not only on, that, on the uh, parapets of that uh, building, but they would be on the walls also looking down. So they had stairways that they could run right down in the temple because they were prepared all the time for the Jews getting worked up and exercised and breaking out in riot, and they learned that they could stomp it out quickly. It didn't spread. And so fortunately for Paul, it's the only reason why he survived to write this letter, because they literally would have beaten him to death and very possibly pulled him limb from limb. So this has come to the background of the letter to the Ephesians, and let me kind of transition to talking about going through somewhat of an outline of the book itself. Uh, the book is very evenly divided into two main sections. I mean, you have the first part, which is the theological section of the book. It's, uh, and, and I mean that in the most literal sense, that he really lays out the theological principles, and then the second part of the book talks about the practical application of that theology to our daily life. 
And so as he begins in, in the first chapter, he starts talking about really in this first section, I should say, what is the biblical basis of our Christian unity? What is, what is, what is God's intention in, in bringing the church together? His first thing he says in chapter 1, he talks about God's purpose, especially in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 1. He says, for he chose us, that is God chose us in him before the creation of the world. And he predestined us and adopted us and redeemed and, and forgave us. And he lavished on us wisdom and understanding. So Paul begins with this statement. This is one of the things that throws people. He uses the word predestined. And we think of predestined often in a very absolute sense in the fact that I'm an automaton who has no choices. What it means is that God has created a destination for you from before eternity because he knew that you would believe. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul put it this way, those he foreknew, the same he did predestined. So God knew that you would come to him and he created a plan for your life in particular. That's what the idea of predestined means, that God has a plan that he is going to fulfill in your life one way or another. It does not imply that you have no choice in the matter. Now, I will admit there are people who teach that and I think they're horribly wrong in saying that. But nonetheless, that is clearly a point of, of disagreement between us. But what he, one of the things I often say is, if we don't have free will and we don't have choice, why are we giving so many instructions on what to do and not to do? In fact, why do I even bother having a Bible if I'm not supposed to do some things and not do something? And if I have no choice in the matter and I'm predestined, I'm going to do it anyway well, then I don't really have to do this and I'll see you guys later. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it really makes life ridiculous because life is all about unending choices and decisions and the consequences that come with the good, the bad, and the ugly in our life. So the point is that he isn't saying to us that you have been chosen in such a way that you have no choice to respond. God knows before you were even conceived in mama's womb that you would believe on him at some point in your life, and that's why you're here, I assume. He knew that. Here's the catch. I didn't, <laughs> and I still had to accept him and respond in faith to him. So there's this mystery, if you will, about the whole experience of Christ in my life. God, who knew I would trust him, also wooed me and called me to him by his Holy Spirit. So that in a sense, we often say, well, when I accepted the Lord, it's more about when he accepted you, but he drew you to himself by his Holy Spirit. And because he knew that your heart would respond. Does he know those who will reject him? He knows that too, but he doesn't make them reject him. And I have to believe that he gives them every equal opportunity it's why he teaches us we should go into all the world and preach the gospel. And I, I, I was having this conversation with a guy. He says, well, he, yeah, he said go into all the world. But he says he really means go only to the elect, those who have been pre-chosen, in other words. And so I said, where is that? I don't see that in my Bible. Where is that in the text? Well, it's implied. I said, by who? <laughs> by you. But the text doesn't say that. He's long-suffering that all should be saved. No, he said it's all suffering, long-suffering that all the elect should be saved. Well, where does it say that? So you find oftentimes that you can develop a theology by just simply adding a verb here or there, and you completely change the meaning. The simple fact is that God has given me free will to make the choice to receive and reject. He knows whether I will. 
I don't, you don't, nobody knows. But at the same time, he said, I'm to present that message to anyone who would hear. So if you believe that you're predestined and you have no choice in the matter, it doesn't really bother me as long as you continue to talk to people about Jesus. <laughs> what concerns me is that some of these guys I've known said, well, it's sin to preach the gospel. I said, what do you mean? Well, because God knows who will be saved and who's not going to be. And if you're out there, then you're trying to do good works to justify yourself in God's presence by sharing the gospel. And so, you know, I took a different line of argument. I just simply said, you're a nut. <laughs> I mean, you're a total whack job, man. You're wasting my time. Just go away. <laughs> no, you stay here. I'm leaving. Anyway, <laughs> but so just in case you were wondering about my feelings about it, I, I tend to hide my real feelings a lot of times. But anyway, but he goes on and he says, why did he do all this? Why did he predestine? Why did he adopt? Why did he redeem? Why did he forgive? Why did he lavish wisdom and understanding and, and, and make known to us the mysteries of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ? He goes on to say, to bring all things in heaven on earth together under one head, even Christ, according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the purpose of his will. As he would later say in chapter 2, verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So he begins by saying, what is really God's whole purpose? It's to bring people who are saved together with one heart, one mind, one purpose, one mission, one passion, one life to be shared together in faith. And so that's really says, as Christ is one with the Father, Jesus said in John 15, we are call, called to be one with the Father as well. And the basis of doing that is where it gets into chapter 2. It's the grace of God that is the key to doing all of that. In fact, I believe that divisiveness comes when we lose sight of grace as the foundation of our life. When we begin to evaluate each other based upon works, we begin to find all sorts of reasons not to like each other, right? <laughs> because grace is the ground from which forgiveness and forbearance and all those good things come. Well, Paul in, chapter, in verses 1 through 10 goes into it as he said in the very first verse of chapter 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions in sins. Why does he start there? To disillusion us from any idea, disabuse us from any fantasy that somehow we saved ourselves. When did I give my life to Christ? I was dead in transgressions and sins. I mean, I was hopeless and helpless, and God came to me in, the, in that condition of my transgressions and sins. He goes on further on to say, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. What was my, my basic essence as a person? A creature that was destined to receive the wrath of God. But he says, he goes on to say, uh, but because of his great love, not your love, and because of his mercy, his rich mercy, he made us alive in Christ. It is by grace, he says, you have been saved. And, and he seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that, you, that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So that when we begin to look at this, we realize where does this ability to really live in unity with other believers, it's having a life that's bound in grace. 
And every time that grace gets lost, what happens is works and legalisms enter in and the church begins to divide. We begin to measure ourselves by what we do and somebody else doesn't or what we don't do and somebody else does. And it becomes this thing that begins to, I raise myself up by putting somebody else down. Well, he goes on to say that why this is so reprehensible to God is because we are God's household. And he says in in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now, being part of a household to us uh, a lot of times simply means an address where we sleep. But in the biblical world, a household was the entirety of your person and place, your identity. It was who you were, your family and your family name and your family heritage. That was everything. You worked with them. You had the same, uh, you know, occupation as your forefathers, and you lived with these people. This was your tribe. This was the center of your life. And he said, when we came to Christ, the grace of God pulled us out of whatever identity group we were part of and gave us an entire new identity, an entire new place in the cosmos that we are to fulfill. And he goes on to say, in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So that incumbent in that is this huge responsibility because when I ask Christ into my heart, we read in Corinthians, he says, we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Now he says, you are a building that God has chosen to dwell inside of you. And he means that both in the personal you and, the, and the, the corporate you. He dwells in you individually, but he dwells in us corporately as a body of believers because he dwells in each of us individually. And all of this is to imply the idea that this should be a, a, an inherent unifying force in our life, that the Spirit of God does not separate and divide. The Spirit of God brings together. That's how we know the Spirit of God is, is working. He, he brings healing. He brings restoration. He brings uh, the fellowship. He, he is the one that causes these things to happen. It is the absence of the working of the Holy Spirit and the absence of grace that has the opposite effect. In fact, it's interesting because he uses this word one. The word one appears 41 times in the letter to the Ephesians. 41 times he talks, one another, one, one Christ, one Father, one Son, so one Spirit, and so forth. He repeats that word. It's the most commonly used word in the entire letter is this idea that you are one in Christ. Which really brings me to the, uh, and he, that's why he goes on. He finally ends in chapter, at the end of chapter 4 by saying, as, as the prisoner of the Lord then, he says, I urge you. He starts off that, the, the chapter 4 by saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling, bearing with one another in love. How do I live a life worthy of the Lord? It's interesting. By putting up with other people in a loving way, <laughs> bearing with one another and tolerating things that may be kind of annoying or irritating or whatever. And then he goes on to say, make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because he said, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. And when you were called, there was one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
So you kind of, when you read that, you can't help but kind of come to this conclusion that Paul is talking about the unity of the faith, the unity of the church. And that's where in chapter 4 he begins to move from the theological argument into talking about how do we maintain that unity? How do we go about actually doing that? And he does it in an interesting progressive way because he says, first of all, that we are one because we are in the church. In chapter 4, verse 11, he says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. For what purpose? He goes on, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. He has spiritual leadership in the church. Why? That we might mature into doing works of service, not so that we can be saved, not so that we can get a title or an identity or any of those other things that we often strive for, but that rather I might learn how to function in a way that promotes unity amongst God's people. In fact, he goes on in verse 23 of the same chapter and says, <coughs> I'm sorry, that kind of snuck out, that basically that we need to be made, and he says, in a new attitude. And again, he says, put on the new self. So before that, he says, put off the old man after the flesh, the old sinful man, and put on this new man, which is the Spirit of God, and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. Isn't that interesting? Speak truthfully to one another. Now, see, we tend to pull these verses out and use them in exclusivity, but they're all being said within this old context. You see, the key to relational integrity and, and relational growth and also is speaking the truth to each other, but doing it in love. Just giving somebody the truth isn't the truth. And just loving somebody isn't love. But when I live in truthfulness, I am, and I love the person that I'm giving the truth, then I fulfill the call. Because really, what do we see? Where do we see the best example of that? We see it in Jesus. There's not a single thing that Jesus ever said to anybody to try to win their approval, uh, to, to get himself out of trouble, <laughs> uh, to suddenly make himself popular and famous. I mean, he had the, you know, from a human point of view, Jesus had the worst church growth program that had ever been written. I mean, he did things that made people leave. And then when everybody had left, uh, at one point, he turns to the 12 guys that are left and said, you guys want to go too? And, you know, it, it's, it's this amazing approach, but Jesus was not here to win friends and influence people. He was here to declare the truth in the perfection of divine love. And ultimately, that statement was the cross. And that's the challenge. Isn't that what God is really always kind of trying to prompt in you and in me to, to bring us to a place where we speak the truth, but we speak it with love? In fact, Drew and I were having this conversation about, you know, some of the helpful advice that pastors often get. He's early on his career, and I'm, you know, kind of been through this a long time, obviously. And he was just saying, you know, I got these gentlemen will come up to me and share with me their perspectives. You know, you know what you need to do? <laughs> and I share them. I said, the, the way that you should really try to correct a preacher's bad preaching is to simply say to him, you know what would really help me to understand better what you're saying? 
<laughs> In other words, you direct it upon yourself. Instead of implying that you're failing because I don't understand what you're saying, you say, here's where I'm coming from. This is what my needs are. Maybe if you could try this, I would be able to hear and understand and follow better what you're talking about. You know, in my case, I, I, I know the key is if I just talked faster, <laughs> it would make it so much easier for people to understand, you know, um, but, um, and, and use just, you know, really short words. Um, but in seriousness, you know, basically, he, he says, we need to realize that we are one church. And, you know, it's, and we were having this conversation, I thought about how many pastors that I know, even our own community, who their style of ministry is so very different from me, and their approaches and philosophy are very different from me, but they're still part of the body of Christ, and they're still doing a great work. I remember when I first came to Spokane, and the church was just growing like crazy, and, and uh, at one of the churches was actually right across the street from us, and they were having, you know, a lot of people in church were having trouble because they're growing and we're not, and they must be doing something wrong. <laughs> And the pastor at the time, the, some of the elders had come and complained to him about, you know, telling him, you know, there must be something terribly wrong with us. And his response was golden. He said, well, looking at the way they're growing, they must be doing something right. <laughs> and I thought, what a mature attitude that rather than being jealous, he's saying, praise God. God's doing something. We should celebrate this. We shouldn't be envious or critical. The whole point is that it's more important to God that we strive to, for unity in the faith than it is for us to win the argument or to be, become more successful. And the problem is that we, we measure it by human standards. I, I love something that Mark Cuban said in an interview about, uh, about winning the Powerball. Uh, he said, if you're not happy now, one and a half billion dollars won't make you happy either. <laughs> I just thought, it's, it's really interesting because it's all about where your heart is at. And what God wants us to heart to be is that we find ways to walk in unity, not to find ways that we can be in opposition and, and to point out the failings of someone else. So easy to do, isn't it? I'm so much better at confessing your sins than my own. I, in fact, sometimes I think I enjoy it. <laughs> We're one church, and he goes on to say that we need to have that same one secondly. In, in chapter 5, he goes on to say we need to have that same oneness in our relationships because there's nothing more telling about our Christianity than the relationships and how we interact with the people who are around us. And he starts off by saying, <clears throat> wives, respect your husbands. Oh, I see we're out of time. I'm going to move on. <laughs> really don't need to say anything about the rest of it. But then he says, husbands, love your wives. Why the difference? Because it's easy for, easier for wives to love their husbands than it is to respect them. And it's easier for husbands to respect their wives than to treat them in a loving manner, in a gracious manner. So he, he really hits on the areas where our weakness is. He says to children, honor and obey your parents. And he says to the parents, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord and don't make them frustrated when you do it. To the slave, he says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men, which I think is applicable to the employee, that you serve your employer as, you, as if you're serving God instead of acting as if, well, if he wasn't such a jerk, I'd be a better employee. You, you know, keep that attitude up and you'll be a formally employed employee. 
And he says to those who are masters or the people who are in charge, treat your slaves in the same way. Treat them the same way you want them to treat you. Because he says in the end of the day, your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, your boss, your employees, those are not the enemy. But whether who is the enemy? Well, that's what he says in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. When we get in talking about the spiritual armor, he says, we have one enemy, and it's not the people around you. He says, put on all the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And he goes to enumerate spiritual powers and forces of darkness. This has got to be one of the greatest challenges. When Paul says to the Corinthians, bring your thoughts into the captivity of Christ, this is a critical place where we need to really take our thought life captive. Because our tendency is want to project our frustration on visible objects around us, usually flesh and blood objects. And we fall into thinking, they're against me, and they're my enemy, and they're ruining my life, and they're taking advantage of me. And I'm not saying that they're not being used in that way. I'm not naive. But the real enemy is not them. The enemy is the devil. He is the one who is seeking to destroy you through other people sometimes, but he's also seeking to destroy them. And particularly if I'm a child of God and I react just like them, if I fight fire with fire, you know, it's almost like I fight hell with hell. <laughs> Doesn't sound so glorious, does it? <laughs> Doesn't sound so pretty at that point. I fight evil with even greater evil in Jesus' name. I'm, it doesn't work, does it? And yet sometimes we fall into that. I'll settle the score. I'll get even. But ultimately and finally, Paul comes to the end of the chapter, and it's interesting, in verses 18 through 20, <clears throat> he gets stuck on a word. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Did you notice that five times Paul said, pray? In fact, 17 times in the letter, he talks about prayer. So that throughout the entire letter, he's talking about the unity of the church and living out our faith in ways that make a difference. It always comes back to pray, 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 pray. Why? Because God reached into the darkness of my life and pulled me out and saved me. It was his power. And Paul says, put on the armor that you might know the power of his might. Pray that God would give you the power that God would open the doors, that he would work miracles, he would change lives, he would change hearts, he would do the things because you can't. You are, in your humanity, you are powerless. My pastor used to always say, or, re, or I said regularly reminded us, I remember, that he said, you know, there's nothing the devil wants you to do more than to fight him in the flesh because he'll win every time. If you fight him in the spirit, he'll run from you. He'll flee. And I think that's really what Paul understood that better than anybody else. Isn't it interesting? In a point in his life where Paul has limited physical freedom, his life is really hanging on a thread, 
And he, he, you look at this guy and say, man, this guy has come to the lowest point, and yet we have four of the most significant letters in the Bible are written during this time of enforced confinement and physical limitation. So often we think, well, I, I can't afford this, or I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I'm running into barriers and obstacles and limitations. It's ironic because it's in those moments oftentimes that God does the most impactful and lasting things, not only in our lives, but through our lives. And here we find Paul, as we read these majestic words, you know, I think it's quite possible that Paul, like the rest of us, a lot of times didn't have time to really think things through carefully. And I just picture him, he's sitting here, he's not going anyplace, sitting down with, with, uh, with parchment and, 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 and feathers sharpened and ink on the table, and he just starts thinking about, well, what, what is it I want to say? I wonder how many drafts he wrote before he <laughs> gave this into uh, Tychicus's hands and said, okay, now you can take it. How, many, how much prayer was spent on thinking about, Lord, how do I say it? I mean, I have this one opportunity to implant truth in people's lives to change them. Because I think we think Paul just was, you know, he was sitting there drinking his tea and kind of chilling and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came on him and grabbed his hand and the pen and the paper and just started writing all over the place. And he's going, man, this is good stuff. <laughs> you know, and then suddenly it's, uh, No. Great truths are often come to us through great wrestling. <laughs> and God opens the eyes and the ears and the hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us to appreciate this wonder book. You know, Lord, my, my biggest ambition from these evening studies like this is to so kind of stir people's interest that they would just say, I'm going to read that book for myself and see if I get the same thing. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just help us to devour your truth and to allow it, Lord, not to just simply impress our thoughts, but to somehow deeply impact our souls, that, Lord, we can learn to depend on you and allow the Spirit within us to express itself in great glory and grace, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. Good evening.